Welcome to season three of What Really Happened, executive produced by Seven Bucks Productions, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks. You can also become a contributor to the show by going to jenkspod.com slash contributors. I'm pretty passionate about this. Horse racing predates baseball. It was the first American sport. This is Joe Drape, award-winning sports writer for the New York Times, best-selling author of American Pharaoh, the untold story of the Triple Crown winner's legendary rise, and overall horse racing guru. It is intensely American. My horse is faster than yours. Let's bet on it. It goes straight to our character. It's the only sport ever run out of the White House. Andrew Jackson was a degenerate gambler and horseman, and he ran and raced horses from the White House when he was president. So, you know, it really plays to our character. It has a rich history. It came with us from the Revolution. It was the sport of kings. If you think this is a story about horses, you'd be right. If you think I cared to talk about horse racing before I started researching this episode, you'd be wrong. Going into this, I was worried. Did I just decide to tell a story that ultimately would be, well, really boring? After interviewing quite a few experts, plowing through articles, speed reading a few books, and then keeping up with a legion of blogs run by horse racing aficionados, in addition to following an array of social media accounts which think, or no, depends who you ask, that horse racing is nothing more than a soulless excuse to abuse gorgeous animals... I am now not just all in on this story, but ready for a trip to the Santa Anita racetrack, where horse racing is a national treasure. Going on 85 years, the track is one of the most cherished and majestic in the sport. But something mysterious has been going on. Yeah, Pat, these are just heartbreaking numbers when you hear of how many horses have died. And folks here at Santa Anita Racetrack want to figure out why this is happening. On December 30th, 2018, the horse Psychedelicat died during a race at Santa Anita. Then a few days later, on January 4th, the horse Unusual Angel died. In fact, in that very same race, so did a three-year-old named Tank Team. Four days later, Secret Street died. On January 11th, Derby Treasure died. January 18th, Noise Mandate. January 20th, Ambiasoli. January 21st, both Like Really Smart and Last Promise Kept. Two days died. later on January 23rd, Dancing Two days Harbor. after that, January 25th, February Spitfire. 2nd, Kid Canatina. February 6th, Come February 17th, Jaeger The next day, February 18th, Unusual Rider. February 22nd, Hot The American. next day, February 23rd, Battle of Midway and the horse just two days forget. later, February 2nd, Charmer March John, 2nd, Eskin for March drink. 5th, Let's Write March the Way, March 14th, Princess Lily 31st, Arms May 17th, runner. Commander Coyle, 20th, Spectacle Music, June 5th, Derby Three River. days later on June 8th, Formal The next dude. day, June 9th, Truffalino, June 22nd, American Currency. Hoping that these changes that they made will end the troubling trend. Between December 30th and June 22nd, 30 horses were dead, all while racing on one racetrack, a racetrack that is one of the most renowned in the world. 
the Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park of horse racing, the Louvre, Lincoln Center. As a result, the sport of horse racing may never be the same. How have all of these horses died? Why did they die? What really happened? Santa Anita Racetrack is one of the treasures of the sport. This again is Joe Drape from the New York Times. It's truly unique to California because it has the California vibe. They have a thing called Clocker's Corner in the morning, which is where all the horsemen gather and people come to watch, you know, three, 4,000 people who have nothing to do with owning horses. And, you know, you can get lattes and you can get avocado toast and you can sit in this beautiful, wonderful setting and watch thousands of horses work out with this San Gabriel backdrop. And it's really beautiful. And uh, it's held the Breeders' Cup which are the world champions of the sport. And they've cho- NBC is, keeps going back there because of its picturesque backdrop. And horse racing is still king out there. And while it's king in California, it is also a business that is big around the country. What Joe says here just shows what's at stake. The horse industry in California particularly, but nationwide, is petrified by what's happened out there. You know, it's just like anything. California is the fifth biggest economy in the world. It's the second biggest economy in the horse business, which is a $15 billion business. It's an agribusiness. You know, it's just not betting and racing them. It's shoeing them. It's feeding them. It's raising the hay. You know, the trickle down on that is spectacular. And that's what they are worried about. If California goes, the dominoes start dropping. This all began on December 30th, 2018 when the horse Psychedelicat died after racing on the Santa Anita track. Now, this happens in horse racing, so it wasn't like red flags were going up all over the place. But within a month, 10 horses in total had died on this one track. Fans and the media started to take notice. Now, picture a Jenga set. Bit of a throwback to my Season 2 episode on Andrew Stanton and his film John Carter. Each block keeps the set from falling. And slowly, as you remove piece after piece, the set will eventually come crashing down. This seems to be what happened at Santa Anita. Let me explain. The first Jenga piece was the weather, said Joe. What happened at Santa Anita Park was a perfect storm of awful weather, unseasonable weather, weather they hadn't seen in 25 years. The unseasonable weather included a lot of rain, something Southern California wasn't exactly used to. With so much rain, there was the worry that water would penetrate the surface. So those in charge of the track did something known as sealing the track. In other words, they packed the dirt on the track tight enough so that water wouldn't penetrate its surface. But packing the dirt together can also make the track really hard. As Joe pointed out, it can mean concrete footing for fragile, 1,100-pound horses with ankles as slim as a Coke bottle. And concrete footing isn't exactly optimal. Think about what happens when you run. If you run down a hard concrete road, it's much harder on your knees and your legs than if you run on a cushiony track surface or a wet beach. Now imagine you're a 1,000-pound four-legged horse. You're going to end up with horses breaking their legs. The surface is just way too hard. And once a horse breaks their leg, 
they are often euthanized, which, let's be honest, is a nicer way of saying killed. Once a horse breaks a leg, they're usually killed. That's because it's very difficult for the leg of a horse to heal correctly. A horse has about 205 bones. 80 are in the legs alone. So when one of the four legs are broken, it's not like it's just a simple fracture. Instead, it's multiple bones which are shattered. It's hard to fix. And the last thing a horse wants to do is sit still. They like to move. Sitting for too long develops pressure sores. Also, blood circulation in a horse depends on its hooves. And if the horse's legs aren't moving, there becomes a blood circulation problem. Once you consider Jenga block number one, the bad weather, more pressure is applied to Jenga block number two, drugs. Different drugs used to help the horse race faster or lessen the pain of those very legs that may already be in bad shape, said Joe. There are guys who use everything from Viagra to heart medicine to morphine to, you know, rubbing cayenne pepper on a horse's genitals to make them go faster. And, you know, they're just straight-out cheats. The more common thing is they give them painkillers. They give them, you know, NSAIDs, uh, you know, high-level Tylenols and that kind of stuff so they can't feel how sore they are. And, you know, the difference, again, the animal rights people will argue, and I kind of agree with them, it's one thing for an NFL linebacker to say, okay, shoot me up, give me a quarter zone in my knee, and I'll play this game. But, you know, nobody speaks for the horse. These drugs led to horses who should not have been racing doing just that. And a painkiller may distract from an injured leg, which the horse doesn't know is on the verge of being broken until it's too late. According to the Jockey Club's Equine Injury Database, nearly 10 horses a week, on average, died at American racetracks in 2018. Joe Drape reported that figure is anywhere from two and a half to five times greater than the fatality rate in Europe and Asia, where rules against performance-enhancing drugs are enforced more stringently. Jenga block number three. And to me, this is where the set really crumbles. The Stronach Group, and Frank Stronach owns the track. Frank Stronach was a billionaire auto parts maker from Canada. He had a passion for horses. He started with breeding them, raising them, and racing them. Then he started acquiring racetracks. He's a guy who has pizzazz. You know, he's done everything from uh, created energy drinks where scantily clad women walk around to sell it. He has built the replica of an Austrian chalet theme park. He has he ran and won a seat in parliament in Austria. So, you know, he's one of these bigger-than-life idea guys, and his idea with horse racing was much like he did with his auto parts, is make the plant work every inch 24 hours a day. You know, shifts on that. So he's brought in movie theaters, he's brought in malls and shops, he's brought in restaurants, he's brought in all these things that are, you know, multi, multi, get people to the track, it's sort of the casino thing, come to the track to shop, and maybe you're going to watch a few races and bet on it. So, you know, he's the big idea guy. The Stronach Group does share a major part of responsibility here. What is clear is that the Stronach Group put people in charge who must make money any way they can to increase the profits, to keep it from being sold or developed, 
they said he was coming and saying, if you don't run your horses, we're going to take away your stalls. And the way that works is, you know, you kind of have to have a parking spot to be in a race car race. You know, they're there all year round training the horses. They have to have a place at the track, a place at the table. And that's the power the racetrack wields over. In fact, Santa Anita Park has about 61 barns, which house more than about 2,000 horses and an equine hospital. You know, they were, they were careless. You got a company that's trying to squeeze every nickel out of the place. Part of trying to make more money was also changing a vital person who ensures safety on a racetrack. And that person is the track man. I had no idea, but the track man or track woman may just be the most important figure in all of this. He or she, in this case a he, may also just be the coolest. The track man is in charge of the actual track. If you're on Broadway, he's making sure that stage is perfect, that actors will be able to glide in every direction, feel the light shining on them at the right angle. If you're a soccer player, he ensures that the field is crisp, that there aren't any dents, grass is perfectly lawned. Now, just imagine how difficult this is in horse racing. You're not dealing with a two-legged human. You're dealing with a human riding on a four-legged horse a horse that weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,000 pounds. A horse that is worth anywhere from $10,000 to millions of dollars. And these horses aren't just running up and down in straight lines. They're running at upwards of 40 miles an hour in an oval shape. And at places like Santa Anita, they are running around on dirt. Who's in charge of making sure everything is good to go? The track man. The track man is, the track man must be, a master landscaper. He or she is mixing variations of silt, sand, and concrete, sorting out which nutrients are best. Sometimes he's looking at different types of grass and all sorts of synthetic grass. Cushion track, fiber sand, poly track. The track man is truly an artist, a scientist, a person who can smell the differences between grasses and feel the difference in soils. If I had my way, We'd do a 10-parter on the track, man, but luckily for all of us, cooler heads prevailed when I brought this up to my producer, Joey. And the track man at Santa Anita was Dennis Moore. For 40 years, Dennis Moore was responsible for keeping the track safe, and he loved it. I dug up a video of Dennis on Twitter, and the man can talk racetracks for as long as you'd like. The turf guys have done a great job bringing along Bernie and Jesse and, and Juan and all of them. What they've done is put nutrients in it, fertilize it, kept a lot of water. The horses' lives depend on the track man not screwing it up. And then... Part of the Stronic Group's recipe for a prescription for making more money was to get rid of him. And it wasn't because he was making that much money. It was because he was a careful guy. And he'd say, no, I'm closing the track. It's too dangerous right now, or the conditions aren't ready for us right now. And he was stood in the way of what the management wanted to do. Suddenly, the esteemed track man was replaced. Outside of the nickel and diming, there are larger issues. I wanted to make sure I took the time to understand why people love horse racing in the first place. I didn't want to just join the bandwagon and say, 
Yep, clearly this is a terrible enterprise. Let's get rid of it. I wanted to talk to a real horse racing lover, somebody who grew up with the sport, somebody who really holds horse racing close to their heart. I found that person. We deeply love these horses so that I've cried many a time when, when a horse dies. Um, I, it, it's, uh, they become part of our family. Meet Larry Smith. Larry is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel with a bachelor's degree in animal science from Cornell University. He owns, breeds, and trains racehorses with his wife at their farm in Maryland. I read one article on a horse enthusiast's website by Larry and Dr. Alec Wallen, author of a number of articles examining the moral foundations of various aspects of constitutional law. The title of their article, In Defense of Horse Racing, Facing the Question of Ethics. What sort of makes horse racing special, unique, is as an industry and a sport, is that it connects us to nature and the outdoors, and it connects us to our heritage. You know, we, our country was settled by horsepower, and our heroes throughout the years were cavalry officers and cowboys and jockeys. And, and there's obviously something very majestic about the horse that not every sport has something that amazing, that such a biological machine can, can go speeds of 45 miles an hour with a human aboard. And even a common man's horse that he bred in his backyard can beat a millionaire's horse that they bred at their estates. Every spring when the foals are born, people dream real dreams of storybook endings to these horses' careers where they win the Kentucky Derby or they win stakes. So there's a, there's a romantic part of horse racing that uh, captures us all. And it's something that, that grandparents pass on to their grandchildren. Larry added, I think that one of the things that we have to remember is that these racehorses are on this earth because we bred them. We bred them to race. We bred them to grow up. We gave them everything we could think of giving them to be on our team as in our racing stable. And in the process of doing that, they're joining our effort. Added Dr. Wallen. The argument that we published was essentially a proportionality argument for horse racing. We said, look, there's a good for both humans and horses. Humans love the animals. They love the racing. Uh, horses, they love the racing too. And if we didn't have the horse racing, we wouldn't have these kinds of horses. So we had to argue basically that the overall benefits to both are, at least in principle, worth the risk. And you know, to be clear, we're not saying it'll be worth the risk no matter how great the risk. That's the discounting notion. So for comparison, think about like cockfighting or dogfighting. There's two differences. One is those are inherently cruel sports because they're aiming at injury. And that's not the case in horse racing at all. But they also have you know, a lot of injury. And if horse racing had the same rate of injury, even without that cruel uh, focus of trying, trying to cause injury, it would still be a problem. So you got to think about what the acceptable risk rate is. And our point is that with best practices, the injury rate is actually pretty low. Like many horse racing fans I spoke with, Larry and Dr. Wallen agree certain components of the sport need to change. And this includes our fourth Jenga piece, where I go from specific elements that hurt Santa Anita Raceway to elements of the sport at large that don't seem to be helping. These components make the whole Jenga tower wobbly in the first place. So for instance, 
the NBA, NFL, hockey, and Major League Baseball all have commissioners, one person and a commissioner's office overseeing the sport, said Joe Drape of the New York Times. One of the great problems of horse racing is there is no commissioner. There's 38 jurisdictions. New York has its own rules. California has its own rules. Florida has its own rules. There's nobody to go to and cry foul on there. And there's tax revenues coming down. So you get a bureaucrat looking over something who probably doesn't even know, you know, a horse's butt from his nose, just watching the revenue stream come in. And they're not going to rock the boat there. Next, the fifth Jenga piece. There's a shortage of horses. You know, when I started doing this in 1998, 40,000, 35 to 40,000 register foals were born each year. And that's thoroughbred racehorses that were bred and dropped to the ground with the sole intention to be racehorses. Now there's 20,000, so that's cut in half. At the same time, when you had those 40,000 horses being born, they didn't race year-round. You know, you raced a couple months. You went back to the farm a few months. Uh, you know, there wasn't uh, ADW, which is a computer thing. I mean, I can pull my phone out and bet on every track right now. And there wasn't that. There weren't 365 days of racing. We're sitting here in New York, Andrew. Today, within 200 miles, there's nine tracks around West Virginia, two in West Virginia, two in Maryland, uh, Pennsylvania, New York. Uh, you know, there's just too much racing. So you got too few horses, too much racing. So that has put a squeeze on them. The decrease in horses mainly is because it's losing popularity and it's losing its value as a commodity. And when you have less horses and asking them to do more, it's a recipe for disaster. And that is what's happening. The sixth Jenga piece, how these horses are treated. In Europe, horses by and large are treated well, said Joe. Versus in America, you go back to, you know, aqueduct underneath JFK off the Van Wyck Highway, and you're confined to a little stall, and you get out in the morning to run around a dirt oval. They race on grass over there. We race on dirt. Dirt is harder to run onto, and it tears you up more. So that's part of the recipe that adds to the fatal breakdowns. You know, we've just become sort of a crass industry versus a pageant of sport as it remains in other parts of the world. With those six pieces, both specific to Santa Anita and issues with horse racing at large, the Jenga Tower came crashing down. Now, I'm going to really go for my Jenga metaphor here, but there is a chance that all of this could have happened, the Jenga Tower falling and all, but nobody noticing. But instead, the Jenga fall was noticed by everybody. The New York Times, Sports Illustrated, morning shows, most major media publications have covered this. And a big reason is because of where this happened. In California, they're more progressive there. PETA has a massive following. And so the perfect storm happened when these 
you know, if 30 horses would have died in New York, it would have gone unnoticed. It didn't go unnoticed in California. And that is because of the value and the beauty and just the pure love for animals out there. But many animal rights advocates have been quick to point out that while Santa Anita got huge attention, it doesn't mean it's a unique case. In fact, they say it's quite the opposite. It really is not an outlier at Santa Anita. This is Kathy Guillermo, senior vice president and a 25-year veteran of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, better known as PETA. What happened there with the 30 deaths happens at virtually every track across the country. Some of them have better records, some of them have worse records, but the bottom line is that more than a thousand horses a year are dying on tracks at racetracks in the United States. I think what the media in many cases has overlooked in covering Santa Anita is the extent to which this goes on at nearly every racetrack in America. And what amounts to a cover-up by the industry on these issues. The industry pretends transparency by publishing statistics on deaths on the racetrack through the jockey club. But in fact, it's voluntary whether or not tracks report those statistics to the jockey club. Many tracks don't. So when they talk about a national death rate on the tracks, it's not complete. It's not complete at all. And they don't talk about deaths in training. They just talk about deaths during races. So I think if anything has been overlooked so far, it's that the racing industry really has not been held accountable for the number of horses who are actually dying. To anybody who thinks that we're alarmist and overreacting, why don't they take pictures of every one of those thousand plus horses who die on the racetrack and put them on their social media? Let's see pictures on the websites of the racetracks of the horses who've died and tell me if we're overreacting. I think what's been very unfortunate and self-destructive about the racing industry is their attitude that dead horses are their problem and that everybody else should butt out. Well, I'm sorry. People aren't going to butt out any longer. There are horses dying. There are horses breaking down. There are horses going to slaughter. There are horses, we don't even know what happens to them after the age of two when they don't make it to the track. Where do those horses go? There are a lot of questions that the racing industry hasn't answered. And the industry's attitude that everyone else needs to butt out doesn't cut it in 2019. Kathy is clear on PETA's position. PETA is never going to support horse racing. We oppose the use of animals for sports and for exploited endeavors like this. However... Kathy seems to understand there is PETA's point of view and the reality. But that said, it's not going to end tomorrow. And there's so much that could be done to make things better for horses on the track. One of those solutions? We need some very sophisticated technology that's been manufactured by a company called Curve Beam, which is a, a three-dimensional CT scan. That can be done in under three minutes of all four horses' legs and can show if there are any pre-existing injuries. That could be put in place in California and could spare a lot of horses. As the new season of horse racing began, there was hope that the changes would make a difference. But during training in early September, a horse died. Then, when the track officially opened again for the new season, on day two, another horse collapsed. Both of his front legs were broken, 
and he had to be euthanized. In early October, another horse died of a suspected heart attack. A 34th died only about a week before the airing of this podcast. And then, just a few days ago, two more horses were euthanized by doctors after suffering from leg injuries. The total since last December is now up to 36 horses. What are horse racing enthusiasts most worried about now? It may just be a ballot initiative. Because once again, California is unique. Said Joe Drape. They're the one progressive straight that it only takes 600,000 signatures to get a ballot initiative. So you could be out of business if they get a ballot initiative that should horse racing live or not. It's a kind of fascinating example is they wanted condoms in the pornography industry out there. And they went out, they got 600,000 signatures. It goes on the ballot. It goes to the election. Should porn of stars be required to wear condoms? You go vote on it. Yes, they, they got it. And, you know, there's all kinds of just, you know, obscure little things that you can do on their ballot initiatives there. So it's really democracy at its most basic and elemental. If you and I go out and get 600,000 signatures and we say, should horse racing exist, it'll go on the ballot, and then you mobilize it and let the chips land where they may. If California goes, the dominoes start dropping. And what you have in California is you have a progressive straight with the strong animal rights proponent with this ballot initiative that can put it up to a vote pretty simply. And, you know, that changes the game. That can potentially wipe out a sport. Last March, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office launched an investigation into the deaths at Santa Anita, but have not yet announced their findings. I reached out to their office, but they declined to comment. Reports are that there have been over 70 subpoenas issued. Trainers, veterinarians, jockeys, and owners have all been interviewed. Governor Gavin Newsom of California has said that horse racing is dangerously close to being out of business in his state, and he's attempting to initiate reforms. I reached out to the Stronic Group for comment, but they didn't return my most recent call. But, according to Joe, they do realize things need to change. The horse industry adopted some changes that would have been unimaginable six months ago on drugs, on veterinary care, on record-keeping and transparency. I mean, they saw the boulder coming down the mountain, and they've rolled over and said, we're going to do anything you tell us to do out there. They've got the bullseye around them, and they're desperately trying to slow the momentum. There seems to be an agreement that better tracks, better treatment of horses, more caution, more oversight, and less drugs means the sport will be in a better place. It also means that the people who own the tracks will have to live with making less money. And whenever you follow the money, you know that is easier said than done. Most seem to be in agreement that the sport must change now before it's too late. Otherwise, I think, as crazy as it may sound, people will look back one day and think, oh yeah, I remember horse racing. What really happened?
After listening to this episode, Larry Smith, one of our guests, believed that an overly negative picture was painted of horse racing. I disagree. I think everything was explained and given tremendous context, but I said if he wanted to write me something to read on his behalf, I'd include it. He wrote, Modern day horse racing is not actually in decline. Far from it. The latest jockey club statistics show combined on-track and off-track betting handle at record levels and growing, right in step with all-time high and growing auction prices for thoroughbred yearlings. Horse racing is in fact very vibrant in 2019. Robust, pageantry-filled race meetings such as Saratoga and Keeneland highlight an industry that has right-sized itself for the new digital age. A much smaller racehorse population is in balance with the decreased amount of live horse racing needed today. With 21st century simulcast internet wagering, bettors can access live horse racing all over the country and all over the world at virtually any time of the day or night. We don't need to bring the live product to our local neighborhoods anymore, so we don't need as many race courses, which means we don't need as many race horses. With more betting and fewer races, purses are way up, and there's plenty of money flowing through the industry. With some leadership, we can earmark a sufficient portion of our revenues to forever fund programs that maximize equine safety and thereby keep this beautiful sport alive and well for ages to come. Here are the top five areas we should focus on right now. One, mandating daily use of quantitative shock absorption metrics to red flag unsafe racing surfaces. Two, funding research and development of mobile diagnostic equipment such as CT scanners, thermography readers, and digital gate analyzers. Three, fully debating, amending, and passing the Horse Racing Integrity Act, which would create a constructive, independent U.S. horse racing anti-doping authority. Four, invoking regulation of interstate commerce to mandate the creation of a term-limited National Thoroughbred Horse Racing Commissioner with a dedicated supporting staff. Five, allocating perpetual funding for the accreditation and support of retraining and placement programs for off-the-track thoroughbreds, something that many, but not all, racing jurisdictions are already doing. Despite whatever Larry and I may disagree with, I want to definitely thank him for his interest and level of engagement, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. It didn't seem like the Jussie Smollett story could get any stranger. He had staged a fake hate crime. But when his defense team reached a deal with prosecutors to drop all charges, the FBI began wondering what really happened. That's next week. If you like the podcast, I'd humbly ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. It actually can make a big difference. For any other feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook at Andrew Jenks, or go to jenkspod.com for more information on the sources for this podcast.